Well, good morning. I'm Joe Collins. Uh, as my wife said, I am not Reese Nealon. And uh, very sorry that I'm not Reese Nealon. I was really hoping he could be here and speak to us today. But he called me really last minute and got really, really sick. He actually had to go to the hospital and the whole nine yards, get some antibiotics and the whole thing. And he tried to hang in there and le left a little door of hope that maybe he could make it. And I finally just pulled the plug and said, Reese, it's not worth it to us to lose you in this process. And so uh, we'll get you back sometime next year. So I do apologize. And uh, on his behalf, he wishes he could be here. But we will get him sometime in the new year. He promises me that he will come back. He loves to come and speak to us uh, at least once a year. He's a dear friend. Uh, and we're, we're grateful to be able to have uh, people like that to come on in. But uh, as a result, I'm here today. And uh, thank you. Thank you. I needed that. So um, what we're doing today is, as my wife mentioned, today is the last time we're together as two churches, Simi Shoreline, for the next few weeks. Because, uh, you know, in December we're going to break up and do our separate worship services. But on Friday the 23rd, it's a Friday night service here. We're going to have a, a Christmas Eve service, well, day before Christmas Eve service on Friday the 23rd, and then we're going to have another service on Friday the 30th, a, a day before New Year's Eve service. Everybody together here, it's going to be great. We've got a Christmas program planned. We've got lots of music planned for those services. They're going to be great. And then beginning in the new year, we are officially one worship, two churches, one worship. And the idea there is to get together with these two families of churches, build the connections, the relationships, the infrastructure, all of those pieces that, that we need because we are better together. And then sometime next year, we're going to relaunch the Shoreline Church to a new location down in Oxnard, and we're going to be one church with two warships. Amen? Amen. So that's the plan. But as we get towards that goal, and as we move into this year, I realize that I've been doing a series called Jesus Worth Following since who knows how long now. It's been going on forever, and it's been great. I've been really growing from it. Hopefully you have too. Um, but I realize that in the next few months, we're going to be together a lot, and, and half of you haven't heard most of the sermons because you were in the Shoreline Church. And so what I thought would be great today was to do a review for everyone here today of the series, of the last two chapters, actually three chapters in the series, and hopefully by the end of the message today, we'll all be caught up, we'll all be on the same page with the series, so that when we go into the new year and we pick the series back up after the holidays, we'll all sort of be starting at the same point. So, as always, I like to start in this series off with a joke, and those of you in me, you've heard this joke before. So don't give it away. There was this atheist, and he was walking through a forest. And as he was walking through the forest, he was admiring the beauty of the forest and the sights and the sounds. And he thought to himself, what, what great trees, and what, what grand animals, and what, what beautiful scenery here. And as he was walking, he began to hear some rustling in the bushes, and he turned around just in time to see a bear charging full speed right at him, teeth growling, drooling, going after him. And so he panics, he turns, and he takes off running. He's running as fast as he can, but the bear is, is bearing down on him, and he trips, and he falls down, he rolls over, and there's the bear right on top of him, claws out, just about to rip his face right off. And he screams, God, help me! And all of a sudden, everything stops. The forest went still, no birds, the water stopped moving, everything was frozen in time, and a light came down from heaven and shone on him. And the voice of God said, Mr. Atheist, you have denied my existence. You, have, you, you, you refuse to believe in me, and you've even told others not to believe in me. What makes you think I should help you in this hour, at this time? And the atheist, being an honest guy, thought for a while, and he realized, you know, God, you're right. And so he said to God, God, you're right. I have no right to call on you and ask for your help because I've denied your existence. Even though, uh, I never, even though you obviously truly exist, I refuse to believe you. And so I don't think it would be fair of me to ask for help. But 
But maybe you could do me one favor. Maybe you could make the bear act like a Christian. So God said, very well. And the light rolled back up into heaven, and the, the sounds came alive. The forest came back to life, and there was the bear, claws out, growling, about to rub it, rip his face right off. And then the bear stopped and sat up and folded his hands and prayed. Dear God, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> you ever wonder why some people have a hard time believing in God? It seems so obvious to so many of us, but you know, it's not always obvious to everyone. But I believe in our study today, we're going to come to one of the clues, one of the keys to, 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 to helping people under, uh, believe in God. We're going to find one of the keys to that. So turn with me now. Well, not yet, but turn with me over to Mark chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, I will put the, the text on the screen. But before we read, I want to share with you this map. You guys have seen this before, but this is a very simple map of the area of Palestine about the time of Jesus, and it shows the basic areas, uh, uh, provinces of Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Perea, Decapolis, and all that, and this was kind of the world that Jesus lived in, and if you notice on the map, there's several stars, and those stars represent the various locations that we're going to follow Jesus in our review today. Remember, the, the series is called Following Jesus, and the whole idea was to go where he went, according to the Gospel of Mark, and learn about what happened in these various locations. So we're going to begin in the city of Capernaum. Now, let's read. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Now, by the way, I'm going to do a lot of reading, okay? Because sometimes we're just going to, you know, it's good to just hear the Bible, isn't it? And it's great to take a passage and break it down, but other times it's just great to read it and to go through it. And one of the things I like to tell people a lot is when you are studying the Bible, take time to read the whole section. Like read, read an entire book all in one sitting. They're not that long. You'd be surprised how quick you can read through them. Or, but, but when you do, when you read a lot of the Bible at, in one sitting, even though you may be missing a lot of detail, you'll get the overall story. And so part of the review is about that. We're going to get the overall story today as we read. Verse 1, Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, do you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed on, sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown on thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times, what was sown. Now, up to this point, Mark chapter 1 through 3, we basically are following Jesus around throughout the area of Galilee. But here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus, uh, Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, his name was Mark, stopped and gave us a sense of what Jesus taught. Remember, Jesus was primarily a preacher of repentance. That's what he did. And primarily, he talked a lot about the kingdom of God as part of his messages. And we see in these parables, there's four here that we're going to look at, Jesus is, in all these parables, they represent some element, or they, they, they in some way relate to the kingdom of God. So that's what Mark 4 is devoted to. And in, verse, in the first parable has to do with, is called the parable of the sower. 
Now, the point of the parable of the sower is very simple. Without breaking it down into being overly complicated or examining it too much, <coughs> it's very straightforward. Good soil is better than bad soil. That's the point. That's the whole purpose of the story. As a matter of fact, in almost all parables that Jesus taught, they're basically comparisons. He's comparing a good thing with a not-so-good thing so that we can understand to do or to be the good thing. And in this case, Jesus wants us to be good soil. And what is it that makes soil good versus soil that's bad? Well, there's three very simple things. Number one, good soil is open. It's open-minded. You cannot be closed-minded and be good soil because that's the seed just bounces right off you. That's like the hard path. Number two, good soil is serious. It's not, it's, it's not flippant about things. And that's the second soil that was rocky and the seed went in and at first it was great, but then once it got uh, hot, it died. Well, that's the point. Good soil, it's serious soil. It takes things to heart. And then lastly, good soil is undivided. It's not weeded. It doesn't have a bunch of weeds. It's not mixed up with a lot of other things. Jesus wants us to be, when he taught it in his day and, in today, and when we read his scriptures today, he wants us ultimately to be good soil, open, serious, and undivided. Amen. We go on in verse uh, 21. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Carefully consider what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, wherever he, whenever, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel. In the head, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So now we get into three more parables, one of them called the lamp on the stand. And the point of a lamp on the stand is that it is better than a lamp hidden under a bowl. Right? If you light a lamp, the point is to spread the light. Put it on a stand. If you put it under a bowl, there's no use for that lamp, for that light. Right? So that's the comparison. But what's the point? What is he saying to you and me? I believe what Jesus is telling you and me is that once we've received the word, we've become good soil, we now have an obligation to share that word with everyone else around us. We are to be lights to the world around us. Then he goes on and tells the parable of a growing seed. This one is really may seem hard at first, but when you think about it, it's very simple. The growing seed is better than a not growing seed, right? A live, a living seed is better than a dead seed. The point is the teaching of Jesus is alive. The word of God is living and active. And if we let it, it grows within us. It becomes uh, something, uh, something it, it becomes alive within us. Then the last parable is the mustard seed. Now, it may be the smallest seed, but it's got the greatest potential. The point here is that God's word, the seed, which represents God's word, we could also call it the kingdom of God, has unlimited potential. <coughs> I rented a house for many years, and in my backyard I had this orange tree. And it was a great orange tree. And every year, we lived there, I don't know, 10 years or so, and every year I'd, I would trim the orange tree because I thought you're supposed to prune trees, right? Now, I am not a gardener, so I have no idea. I just heard that you prune trees. So I would prune the trees. And every year it would produce its oranges, and that was great, until I met a friend who told me to stop pruning the trees. Now, he was a, a gardener, or had, had a green thumb, and he grew a lot of uh, fruit trees, and he said, no, you don't prune them. If you ever go to an orchard, and you guys, many of you that live out in Oxnard know this, they just let those trees grow, and they actually mushroom over, and they, they become massive. And he said, you just let it grow. The only thing you need to do is clear off the little sucker plants that are around the base of the tree, because 
they get annoying, but the rest of it, let it do its thing. And so I said, okay, so I did that. And the next year, it was unbelievable the amount of oranges that came out of that tree. I mean, that thing was so full of oranges, and they were awesome. And we had so many oranges that my kids would get in orange fights with the neighbors on the other side of the fence because we just had tons of oranges, so much we could throw them at each other. You know, all too often, you and I try to prune the work of the kingdom of God in our life. We try to prune the growth of the word of God in our life. Maybe because we get uncomfortable. We don't necessarily know where it's going to take us. We don't necessarily know where we're going to be called by God. But God is going to do his work if we let him. One of the biggest takeaways from this whole section in in Mark chapter 4 is that we've got to let the spirit do its thing. Too often we try to prune it. Too often we try to contain it. We try to control it. And at the end of the day, all we're doing is we're restricting its growth. But if we trust in God and we trust in the word and we allow his kingdom to grow within us, it will do amazing things in our lives. It has unlimited potential. Verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. After leaving the crowd behind, they took, along, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and waves took, broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So after a whole day of teaching, Jesus says, Hey, let's get out of here. Let's go across the lake to the eastern shore, the, the Gentile side of the lake. We'll get away over there. And along the way, they run into a storm. And these guys were fishermen. They were used to storms. But this was a pretty bad storm, so much so that they were terrified. And, of course, there's Jesus in the back of the boat asleep. And so they wake him up and like, don't you care? And Jesus is like, oh, my goodness. And he calms the wind and the waves. And now they're more afraid now than they were before. Who is this guy? You know, there's a lot of what ifs that happen in life. And a lot of times I know for me, the what ifs scare me. What if I lose my job? What if that person doesn't return my love? What if I get offended? Or what if I I get embarrassed? Or on and on it goes, right? Jesus is the Lord of the what ifs. Even if the boat was going to sink, Jesus was there with the disciples. He's the Lord of the what ifs. Too often I think we let fear dictate our choices. Too often we let it determine our steps instead of faith. I don't know what God has in store for you. I know that it's going to be scary at different times. I know it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be nerve-wracking. It might even be fearful. But But know this, whatever the case may be, if you maintain your faith in Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of the what ifs. I asked a friend of mine, he used to be our intern in Simi Valley, his name's Anthony. I said, Anthony, draw me a picture that represents this story, because he's a good artist. And so we talked about the story, and this is the image he drew. And I absolutely love this image, because to me it really encapsulates this whole moment in Jesus' ministry. Absolutely love Anthony's art. (laughs) But I mean, doesn't that just picture it? I mean... We all think, oh, Jesus must have been great. I put before you, if we were with him, we'd be just as scared as those guys were most of the time. Jesus is Lord. He's awesome and terrible and mighty. And we, we really need to realize that he's so much greater than we can even imagine. He really is the Lord of the what ifs. Verse chapter five. Hey, we made it to chapter five. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained and had hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. 
No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, the tombs and in the hills, they would, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hill, uh, nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and, impure, and, and the impure spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the step, steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw that a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, mercy, had, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So the Gerasenes was on the northeast side. Remember, Jesus was over there on the northwest side near the city of Capernaum when he was teaching those great parables. And after he was done, he took off across the lake. They went through the storm. He calmed the storm. And then they ended up on the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in an area called the, the, the Gerasenes. It was a Greek, very Hellenized area. It wasn't very Jewish in culture or, or in understanding. And now, I don't know if the disciples were still so freaked out on the boat. Remember the picture. But they apparently ended up in the wrong place. They ended up at a port that no one used anymore. The reason why that port was closed, because there was not just one, there were actually two demoniacs. One of the other Gospels tells us that there were two men, not one. And these two guys were so frightening and terrifying that no one would enter the port anymore. So it seems to me that the disciples either were blown off course by the wind or they were so rattled by Jesus that they ended up at the wrong place. And they get off. It's the middle of the night, by the way. And two crazy men come charging up to them, screaming, not dressed, freaking out, demon-possessed, charging up to them. I don't know about you, but sometimes we think, oh, being with Jesus would have been great. We would have been terrified most of the time. These guys were terrified. They just get off the boat. You can see them shaking, and all of a sudden, here comes these demoniacs. They run. They fall down. Jesus stops them in their tracks and immediately sends them out, Cast out the demons. Now, the demons want to go somewhere, so they ask to go into a herd of pigs. One of the, one of the humorous moments in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, go ahead. 2,000 pigs rush down a hillside into the lake, into the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know, but I've seen on YouTube videos of pigs herding and running, and they don't typically do that. But I guess if they're scared, they will kind of charge off in a direction. But, you know, 2,000 pigs, so if you figure, let's say they were 10 wide. How many rows is that? If you had 10 pigs wide and you had 2,000 pigs, is that like 200 rows? So let's say it took five seconds for each row to fall into the, into the Sea of Galilee. How many seconds would that have added up to? Five plus 200 or times 200, right? I don't know what that is, but 15, 20 minutes? You ever thought about what everybody was doing while the pigs were just running into the Sea of Galilee? It's always humorous to me that you just, they're, they're just like, one out, and just watching. Now, the, the herders of the pigs, they're panicked because, you know, these guys didn't hold good jobs, and here they are herding the pigs, and they probably lost all the jobs they had before, and sure enough, everybody's going to blame them, right? So they run into the town. It wasn't us! It was Jesus! And everybody comes running out to see what happened. They tell the whole story, and there's the demoniac, the two guys in their right mind dressed. And now the whole people on the eastern shore there in that region called the Gerasenes, they're now terrified of Jesus. What? Who? are you who is this guy and they immediately ask him to leave you know the world is very limited this these two men were living miserable lives they were cutting themselves they were abusive they lived in a tomb to in a, in a cemetery 
they were not in their right minds. They were tormented by demons. And the world offered them nothing, even though they tried. The people on that side of the shore, the passage tells us, they tried to help these guys. But there was nothing they could do. No one could offer them any help. And in a couple of minutes, Jesus walks up and frees them from what's troubling them. The world is lost without Jesus. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you believe that yet, but let me repeat it. The world is lost. It's a dark place. There are no real answers without Jesus Christ. Look around. All you have to do is watch the news, which I quit doing. For just a few minutes, especially news that come from parts of the world where the message of Jesus has been uh, 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 persecuted. It is a dark place. We have something so incredibly valuable, more valuable than anything on this earth. And it's in your hand right now, either in the form of a book or on your on your app on your phone. It's called the word of God. It's the Bible. Divine revelation. And it's there and only there do we find answers. Genuine, real answers for what troubles us. Before Jesus leaves, though, and gets in the boat to head back, I do want to make a comment here, and I just want to pause. Because in the Gospels, you read about demon possession, and there's always a lot of debate that breaks out about demon possession. What is it? Was it real? Was it their way of describing mental illness? On and on the debate goes. I'm not here to have that debate. We don't have time. But I want to sum it up in, in, a, in a quote that I read from C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, a Christian uh, 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 apologist that lived in the last century. He said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons are equally pleased by both errors. Wherever you stand on this, I don't know, but, but let's just do this. Let's agree to believe what the Word of God says. That's the easiest way to go. It's the most straightforward. It's the most direct. I'm going to believe what the inspired Word of God says about these stories. Can I explain all of them? Do I understand how they relate today in all these ways? No, I don't. But it would be foolish of me to deny that they're real. It would also be foolish of me to spend all my time trying to understand it. Because I already have the answer I need. Jesus Christ. We already have the revelation. I don't need to explore this, this part of, 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 of the scriptures and try to get involved in it. Because it's, it, it, it results in a lot of peril for a lot of people and a lot of bad doctrine. Remember this. The world is lost without Jesus Christ. Verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my, daughter, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with them. A large crowd uh, followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her sufferings. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, uh, happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? On hearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. There's people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother, the disciples who were with him, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. She gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Not only did he heal uh, people of their infirmities, not only did he stop the wind and the waves, but let's just pause and reflect for one second. He raised a 12-year-old girl to life. He gave her back to her family. It really is cool. It really, really is. So it's the middle of the night. Remember, they, Jesus had taught all day. They got in a boat. They went across the Sea of Galilee, which is about a seven, ten-mile journey. They get to the other side. They get off the boat. The demons, the two demoniacs come. He does that little scene there. Then they have to leave. So they probably left in the middle of the night to go back across the lake. They get back across. It's probably morning by the time they get back across. And there's a big crowd there waiting for Jesus. I mean, they were there the day before hearing him teach. They saw him leaving the boat, and so they didn't go anywhere. And next thing you know, there he is again, right back on the shore. So there's a, a whole other crowd there. They get off the boat, and there's so many people, literally thousands, <clears throat> are crowding around him that he's being pressed, and he, he's trying to get through the crowd. When a, when a synagogue ruler, Jairus, comes up to him and has a, has a need, his daughter is dying. Now, this was probably somewhere near the city of Capernaum, and there's a good possibility that Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. As the ruler of the synagogue, his responsibilities were security and for uh, protocol and maintenance and all that kind of stuff. He was also the guy that would invite guest speakers in. Interesting, because probably several months before this, if that is the same man, he might have been the guy who invited Jesus to speak in the synagogue in his first public message. Just several months before, remember when Jesus preached the message and everybody was blown away by his authority and then he healed a, another man uh, by, uh, who was possessed by a demon and everybody was panicked? It might have been the very same guy. And so he had a reason to come to Jesus. He knew Jesus was the answer at this point. But what's interesting is he may not even have been a friend of Jesus because at this point, the, the religious leaders in, Jeru in, in, in um, the Jewish faith had turned against Jesus. They were openly calling him possessed. They were openly accusing him of, of blasphemy. So Jairus may or may not have been a friend to Jesus. I, I just don't know. But he was desperate, and he came to Jesus, like Anthony's friend that he met at Cabaretta's. He's not quite desperate enough, right? Well, Jairus was desperate enough. It's time. I got to go. I got to go get help because there's nothing. My daughter's going to die. Thank God for difficulties in life. Because without them, we would never turn to God. And that would be a shame. So Jairus goes to Jesus. He needs his help. He asks him to help him. And, and Jesus goes with him. I really want to stress this, guys. Jairus, as I said, may or may not have been a friend. But for Jesus, it didn't matter. Because there's a better way to treat people. And that was Jesus' way of being. He treated people the best way possible. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. We may not get along when we bring these two churches together. We may have some disagreements and some differences. But, you know, let's remember one thing. There's always a better way to treat each other. That we don't just treat each other however we emotionally feel in the moment. But we, we, we pause and we treat people the way Jesus would treat us. The way we would like to be treated. And, you know, if we just do that one thing, we're going to go a long way in building a lot of unity and a lot of love and a lot of trust with one another. So J Jesus goes with Jairus, and along the way, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches him and gets healed. And Jesus knows this has happened, and so he starts looking for her in the crowd. And he finds her, and she explains what had happened, and Jesus says, Woman, hey, you're healed. Go in peace. The interesting thing here is just like the demoniacs, this woman spent 12 years trying to stop her bleeding, and there was nothing humanly possible. Mankind is limited. God is not. The other thing that jumps out at me is in all these people that are there to hear Jesus, as far as I can tell, only one woman, and maybe a few of the guys around him, actually had faith in him. Isn't that interesting? That the world could be full of people who follow Jesus and almost none of them have faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want Simi and Shoreline Church to be the few. Yeah. 
I want us to be the church that has faith in Jesus. Not just follows, but we believe in what he says. And we believe in what he calls us to do. And we do what he says because we actually have faith in him. Who knows, this woman might have been there the day before and heard the the parable of the mustard seed. And she might have thought, if I only just touch him, hey God, you said, if I have the faith of a mustard seed, all I got to do, let me just touch him. And she was healed. Let's be the people who have faith in Jesus. Eventually, they they have to break free of the crowd to get to Jairus' house. Along the way, they find out that the daughter has died. And I love Jesus. No, she didn't. She's asleep. We're going to explain more of this in a minute, but let me just give you a little insight because it's really fascinating when you read Mark. But what's happening here in the first chapters of Mark is crowds are following Jesus. He's exceptionally popular. There's crowds, hundreds, thousands are following him. And at any given moment, he was in danger of those crowds breaking into a riot and trying to make him king. You know, a messianic revolt. And so Jesus had to frequently downplay what he was doing and he had to do it uh, oftentimes with only a few people around because he didn't want the 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 word to spread and all of a sudden these uprisings to break out trying to make him king and that's why we see him pull only a few people with him that's why he got away from the crowd that's why he told everybody no no she's only asleep he's downplaying the miracle of resurrecting a girl from the dead if you ever have doubt in the authenticity of the scriptures, this is one of those times where you go, there is no human on, in the world, if they were fabricating this story, would downplay the resurrection of someone from the dead. That would be the high point of the story. Jesus is like, no, 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 don't tell anybody. So they go and they raise the girl from the dead. The last thing I would say that really strikes me here is that Jesus always makes it better. He always fixes it. He always leaves us better off than we were when we started. And I can tell you, in uh, all the years that I've been a disciple, it is absolutely true. My life is always better when I follow Jesus. Not easier, but it's always better. Not without difficulty, but it's better. And if you sometimes, if that's all you can remember, remember that. Because in those difficult times, remember it's always better. When you're at school and the peer pressure is there and they want you to go along with the crowd and do whatever it is that they're doing and you know it's not the right thing to do, remember, Jesus always makes it better. It's always a good bargain to, to say, no, I'm going to do what Jesus would want me to do. When you're at the workplace or wherever it is, whenever temptation hits you, whenever Satan comes knocking at your door, no, 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 no. I've had what you've said. I've done what you've done. I've, I've bought what you've sold. It ain't worth it. What Jesus, with Jesus, it's always better. <clears throat> I think we're into chapter 6 here. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you're in our house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus is gone. You know, and one day he went across in the middle of the night to the, to the, the, sea, the eastern shore, the Sea of Galilee, got in the boat, came back. And in the morning, was right there in a crowd of people, made his way over to Jairus' house, healed a a woman who had been bleeding, raised a girl from the dead, and eventually was like, hey, I want to go home, back home to Nazareth. That's where he was from. I don't know how much time had passed, but he eventually made his way back to Nazareth. Now, Jesus, this is the second time Jesus went home. 
The first time was about two years prior when he, when he first left home. He went down, spent some time with John the Baptist, came back home to Nazareth, and it told everybody that he was the Messiah. Not, not too different from kids who go away to college and come home and tell you how life really is. <laughs> and the people in Nazareth had the same reaction to Jesus that you and I have to our kids when they tell us they think they know what life's really all about. They tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so Jesus left, went to Capernaum, and in the next two years, he went around all over Galilee, healed, performed miracles, and at this point, he's literally got thousands of people coming out to hear him speak. He's got 12 official disciples who are following him. He's done amazing things, and he decides to go back home. Now, you would think this time it's going to be better, right? This time, the people at home are going to go, oh, Jesus, we were wrong about you. No. They got so mad at him, they started insulting him. Oh, yeah, where's your dad? Who's, who's really your dad? And the Bible says he could do no miracles there. There was no faith in Nazareth, his own hometown. He left the shore of the Sea of Galilee where people were just touching him and being healed. And he went to Nazareth maybe 10, 12 miles away and he couldn't do a miracle because there was zero faith. May that never be said about you and I. So there he is. He gets uh, uh, berated in his own hometown. They reject him. And so he, what does he do? He grabs the disciples together and he says, okay, guys, let's go on a mission team. You would think that he would, uh, you know, have some time of rest and R&R. &R. Not Jesus. It was time to go. It was time to go. And he, what he wanted to do this time was to pair the disciples up two by two. He gave them the power to preach repentance, the authority. And then he gave them the power to perform miracles. He said, now go out two by two, all over Galilee, even though we had gone all over Galilee already probably a couple times by now, I want you to do it again. This time you're going to go on your own. I'm not going with you. And they said, great. Uh, you know, I got to go back. I got to get my backpack and I got to get my sandals and I got to pack my bags and get some money. And he's, no, 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 no. Go now. Well, okay, okay, Jesus, right, right. Let me get my, let me get my money. And, no, 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 no. Go now well what are we going to do about food we'll just ask people to feed you when you're there well where are we going to stay wherever you're welcome what if we're not welcome then leave <laughs> it's literally what he said you know the christian life is full of a lot of hard things life is hard but as a Christian, I don't know about you, but raising kids is not easy. It's difficult. Repenting of your sin is never easy. Changing your character is never easy. Dealing with hardship is never easy. You know what is easy? Sharing our faith. Please remember this, because I know we're going into the holidays, but I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. The single easiest thing any one of us do as Christians is share our faith. We don't need money. We don't need bags. We don't need bread. We, we just need some clothes. <laughs> Wear clothes. <laughs> and share your faith. It's, sandals are optional. A staff is optional. Oh, one, one, okay, bring a friend. Bring a friend, put on some clothes, and share your faith. It's the easiest thing any of us can do. We make our lives so hard. I remember going on, I'm not a hiker. I went on a hike to Yosemite, in Yosemite, up to Half Dome. It's like a, it's a nine-mile, one-way, 18-mile round trip. You get up in the middle, of the, it's like two in the morning. I put on my, my hiking pants with the zipper things in case it gets hot. And then a backpack, and I had a, a fanny pack with water bottles, and I had a backpack with extra food and water purifier and a hat and sticks to walk with. I mean, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I could have survived for years. <laughs> and here we go. We head off, and we go hiking up to Half Dome. And along the way, I'm on the trail, and people are going by me, running, 
in dolphin shorts and tank tops with a water bottle. One in their hand. These are the people who live in the Yosemite Valley. If you've never been there, there's a whole group of people that live in the valley. They work at the campsites and at the stores and all this. And these are the kind of people that love this kind of stuff. They're kind of the nature people. And for them, they go on a nine-mile run to Half Dome in the morning for fun. And here I am loaded up with bags. Every hour, we'd stop and eat, you know, like as if we were going to die. I made it so much harder than it needed to be, really. Sometimes we make sharing our faith so much harder. Oh, we've we got to have 25 people, and everybody's got to be on time. We've got to have a map, and we've got to know where to go. And everybody, and if somebody doesn't come, we're not doing it. I'm not doing it. If no one comes, I'm not doing it. It's the easiest thing we do. Please, remember this. Jesus told these guys, go. Go now. Wear your clothes, bring a friend. That was the whole plan right there. And he sent them off. Verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why its miraculous powers are working him. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. Here's one of my favorite lines. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, wanted to kill him, but she was not able to, because Herod feared John protected him, knowing him to be righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And, she prom and he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So what happens here is Mark, now that the disciples are sent out, Mark pauses in the story, and he, he closes the book on John the Baptist. You might remember in chapter 1, John the Baptist was an important guy. He was, he was a known prophet. He was the E.F. Hutton of Israel. When he spoke, people listened. He had a massive following. And when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist passed the torch on to Jesus. And in order to, to help that torch be passed, God had John the Baptist removed out of, the, out of the way because otherwise John's followers never would have turned their attention on to Jesus. And, and how did God do that, this great hero of the faith? How did God treat him? God sent him to prison. Are you prepared for whatever God might do with your life, wherever he might send you? So John goes to prison, and while he's there for a couple of years, Herod doesn't want to kill him. Herod's afraid of John. He likes John. He's afraid of him. He doesn't know what to do with John. He likes to listen to him. But then his wife, who he had stolen from his own brother, Philip, hated John. And so her daughter danced, and Herod said, okay, whatever you want. And they had John beheaded. And that's the story of John the Baptist. It might seem pretty unglorious, but in reality, I think it's in a glorious story. It's a glorious story of a person who put their faith in God, no matter what the risk, no matter what the cost, and he died a hero. He died faithful. Yeah, it was in a prison in the Middle East in 2,000 years ago, and no one knew about it but the disciples who wrote it down. It wasn't that big of a deal at the time. But in God's eyes, John the Baptist was a hero. John said about Jesus, I must become less, he must become more. When Jesus heard about John's death, he said, among women, no one, no, among those born of women, no one was greater than John. How would you like that to be said at your funeral by Jesus Christ? Boy, no one was greater than Peter Revizzo. 
John is a shining star in the gospel. He's a hero. Yeah, he died in a very inglorious way, but not as I see it, not as people of faith see it, not as God sees it. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, no matter where we live and what time in history we live, people of faith are always in a very precarious position. At any given point in time, even today, the world will turn, can turn against us. It has many times throughout history, and it will again. We are always in a precarious position, but John reminds me, and hopefully he reminds you that we can never quit, that we never give up, we never back down, we never give in. And, and however it is that we end, whatever our end looks like, if we go out like John, it will be a glorious ending. And there will be a reward waiting for every one of us in heaven. Verse 30. The disciples gathered around Jesus and reported him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a, huge, a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks, broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So we left Jesus in Nazareth. He sent the disciples out two by two. And at some point, he made his way back to Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum was kind of the home city. It was the home base. Peter's house. And they went, he went back to Capernaum. And the disciples spent the next several weeks, maybe months, roaming all through Galilee and teaching and preaching and healing and doing what Jesus said. And at some point, they made their way back to Capernaum. And they began to report everything that had happened. And Boy, what a, what a night that must have been. Jesus, we did this, and we did that. And, uh, Peter healed this guy, and John said this, and everybody freaked out. But then Andrew said this and calmed everybody down. And, and, you know, and, and they must have had some awesome stories. It was clearly incredible because by this point in time, literally thousands of people had come back with them to Capernaum to hear Jesus for themselves. And at this point, the city of Capernaum is swelling full of people, literally thousands of people from all over Galilee because of the two by two going out, sharing their testimony, coming back. People were in line coming with them and there were crowds and crowds of people so much so that they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus says, look, guys, we got to get out of here. Let's go get a night away again with the night away thing. So they get in a boat and they go back to the eastern shore. This time they go a little bit north of the Gerasenes to an area called Bethsaida. They get there and this, these thousands of people that were in Capernaum ran seven miles around the sea and beat them to the port. So they get off the boat and there's literally thousands of people there. And what does Jesus do? Well, of course, he throws his book down. He gets frustrated. He's like, I can't even get a break. Would you just leave me alone for five minutes? I just want... No. He does what he always does. He begins to preach repentance and practice grace. He begins to take care of the people, ministering to them, teaching them, preaching to them, healing. And this goes on all day. The disciples are literally exhausted at this point. And they're like, Jesus, send them away. We gotta, they got to go eat. I mean, come on. Now, 5,000 men are mentioned. Now, if you factor in women and children, that number is somewhere between twenty to 25,000 people. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. And of course, they're like, no, not possible. 
So Jesus goes, well, give me what you have. Five loaves, two fish. By the way, that would have been the typical lunch of a little boy in Palestine at the time. Five crackers, a couple of sardines, literally. Jesus takes it, he blesses it, and he begins reaching in and taking them out and passing it out. And every time he reaches in, more comes out. And every time he reaches in, more comes out. And every time he reaches in, more comes out. To the point to where eventually all 5,000 men and the women and children, some 20, 25,000 people are all fed. Twelve baskets, we'll get to that later, were left over. This is one of the two most significant miracles in all of Jesus' ministry. Significant because it was done in front of the most people. It had the most witnesses. The most people experienced it. It really is the high point of his time in Galilee. This is the climax of his last two years. He's so well known throughout Galilee that at some point he was drawing crowds of 10 to 20,000 anytime he went somewhere. I want you to think about the significance of this miracle. It's the only miracle next to the resurrection, which is the other most significant miracle that was mentioned in all four of the Gospels. This miracle involved the creation of food. You know, when he went in there and grabbed a fish, that fish never lived, never swam. It came out smoked. (laughs) Those crackers were never grown. They were never milled. They came out baked. And time and time again, he just kept creating food to give away to the people. 20, 20, 25,000 people in one sitting. This was a big deal. This was a big moment. You know, in golf, there's a big moment. It's called driving. Who here likes to golf? Okay, like three. All right. So <laughs> I used to, but I'm bad at it, so I think I've quit. But uh, in golf, there's a phrase, you drive for show, you putt for dough. Driving is like the big deal. Like, this is when you show off, you know, and the big guys, you get there, they hit this thing, you know, 300 yards, 350 yards down the fairway. It's the big moment. You put the ball on a tee, you tee it up, and you just take the biggest swing you can possibly make, and you hit that thing as hard and as far as you can possibly hit it. Jesus teed up this miracle. He put it on the tee for the disciples. He put the ball right there, and he said, you feed these people. He originally intended for the disciples to do the miracle, and they whiffed. They didn't even swing. I think that some of us have gotten flat in our Christianity And I think the reason why is because we've stopped swinging for the fences. We've stopped trying to go big. We've stopped trying to do big things. We're just trying to do little things. Golf is no fun if you putt your way around the golf course. It's only fun when you blast a drive 350 yards down the fairway. You've got to go big sometimes. If you're wondering why you're not feeling your faith like you used to, consider going big. Jesus intended the disciples to do this miracle. They refused because they were faithless, even though they had been out for months healing and performing miracles themselves. This was too big. They couldn't get their minds around it. They refused to do it, so Jesus did it. And just to make his point, when it was all over, every one of them got a basket, 12 basketfuls, one for each disciple. Here, what could have been? Uh, this is off script here, but my son Kelly used to wrestle in high school, and one of the funniest moments ever, he was at a wrestling tournament, and I don't know why they did this, but at this weird wrestling tournament, they gave away medals for all the way down to like sixth place. Almost embarrassing at that point, but so there was like only two people that didn't get medals. There were like eight kids and six got medals, and so what was funny though is one of their big studs on their, on their wrestling match, he had lost the, 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 the main match, and so he was not really into it, and he had to wrestle for like fourth or fifth place, whatever it was, and um, he wasn't really into it, and one of, the, one of the weaker wrestlers beat him, totally by a fluke at the last second, got out of a hold, got the reversal, got the two points, won the match. When the matches were over, they gave medals out. First place guy got a big old medal, second place guy got a big old medal, third place guy got a big old medal, fourth place guy got a big old medal, fifth place guy got a little tiny medal, <laughs> sixth place guy got a big old medal. 
fifth place, it got this little tiny medal. It was, it was more embarrassing than it was good. I imagine Jesus giving this basket to these guys going, here's your medal, guys. Good job. You can imagine them walking away like, uh, boy, we blew that, didn't we? Yeah, they, they had a chance, and they didn't take it. I don't want to do that. I want Simi, I want Shoreline, I want, I want you as a Christian to go big. I want to go big. That's how you love the Christianity. That's how you love the faith. So they, they failed to go big. So at the end, 5,000 people, 25 some odd people were fed. Biggest miracle. It was awesome. Then we finish off. We're closing out here with the end of our story. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. As he was about to pass by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed at Gesenaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So what happens here, this crowd of thousands, tens of thousands of people, they get fed. Well, you can imagine what's happening here. These people, John tells us, the Gospel of John tells us, that at this point, an uprising actually broke out, and they tried to make Jesus king. Of course, free food for everyone. He's got to be king. So they immediately grab him, and, and Jesus, you know, breaks away from the crowd, and he tells the disciples to leave. He hurries them off, and he wants them to get out of town quickly by boat and head back to where they, where they were probably going to go, which was Capernaum or somewhere near Capernaum. But he told them to go by way of Bethsaida so that people wouldn't know where they were going. And then he stayed back and dismisses the crowd. He calms the crowd down. He, he stops them. And then that night, he goes up to pray, and he's praying all night about 4 in the morning. He decides to go and catch up to the disciples. And just like you and I would do, he decides to walk, not around the lake, across the lake. Which is so funny to me how nonchalant this story is. So he goes walking across the lake, and he decides he's just going to walk right by the guys in the boat. They're stuck in the middle of the lake, straining against the wind, and he's going to walk right by them. And they go, it's a ghost! And they start freaking out, and then he has to go to them, say, no, no, and he gets in the boat. They calm the wind, wind down. They eventually get across the lake, and when they get off, it's morning, and there's crowds there again, and immediately people are being healed, and all this incredible stuff is going on. There was tons of faith. But I want to end on this one point here. This line in this story is really the most important to me. It says in verse uh, 52, for they had not understood about the loaves. I want you to realize something for a minute. This story was written well after it took place. Mark was a follower of Jesus. He might have actually been present at some of the miracles because his family were believers in Jesus. Whether he was or wasn't, we don't know. But when he grew up, he became close friends with Peter, who was present at these miracles. And Peter relayed his stories to Mark, and Mark wrote them down for us. And so when we read these stories, every now and then, Peter adds a little commentary. And verse 52 is a commentary. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. This is Peter, many years later, after uh, seeing Jesus resurrected, after being a, a tremendous man and leader in the church and doing miracles himself and ultimately going to the cross and dying. Many, many years later, he realized something about this story. He realized that the loaves were significant, that those baskets that those guys were given at the end of the feeding were important. When Jesus shooed them away, got them in the boat, they took their baskets with them. The baskets were in the boat. They get out on the lake. They start straining against the wind. They can't cross the lake. They don't know why. They see Jesus. He gets in the boat. They get across the lake. What is Peter realizing many, many years later? What, what dawns on him when he reflects on this story? His heart was hard. That's what he realizes. What does that mean? I put before you that if Peter and the rest of the disciples understood the power of Jesus, and they understood the power he had given to them, not only would they have fed the 5,000, but they would have walked across the lake themselves. They didn't realize what the loaves meant. The loaves meant that there is unlimited potential 
when we put our faith into Jesus Christ. You and I have been given baskets, not, not real, but figurative. And in those baskets is the word of God and your experiences. And those baskets help us live a faithful life. Because whenever we go through life, we just all we got to do is keep going back to the basket, back to the loaves, back to the word of God, and be reminded of the unlimited potential of faith. And I hope, if nothing else, you leave here today with this in, in your mind, this image of having your own basket with the Word of God in it and, and being reminded of the unlimited potential that you've been given. It comes from faith in Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery because you want to. But when you do what God wants you to do, when you step out on faith and live in accordance to His will, God is right there with you, giving you the power to do it. So here's the conclusion of this whole three chapters that we just read. Take Jesus at his word. That's what they failed to do. That's why their hearts were hard. They failed to do it. But you and I don't have to. We can take Jesus at his word. So why are so many people struggling with faith or belief? Why are there so many atheists in the world? Because they don't take Jesus at his word. They struggle with the actual words of the Bible. You and I don't have to do that. If we just open our minds up, if we become good soil and just listen to it and let it sink in, we will tap into unlimited potential and our faith will go through the sky. At this time, we're going to stand. We'll close out in prayer. We're not going to have a final song. I think I went long today. Forgive me, but we are caught up. Thanks for letting me know I went long. But uh, we're going to get cut. We're all caught up now. Look forward to seeing you in December. God bless you. I'll close in a prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time to be together. We pray that you help each and every of us walk out of here with our basket of faith and help us to put our trust in your word and take you at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.